Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert in myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about targeted therapies for lung cancer with Dr. Scott Gettinger. Dr. Gettinger is Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine, and here's Dr. Stephen Gore. So lung cancer, um, pretty common. It seems to me when I uh, was in Maryland, uh, we were like a huge state for lung cancer, and I think lung cancer was probably the most prevalent cancer in Maryland. Is that true up here as well? So lung cancer is not the most common cancer. Actually, in men, it would be prostate cancer. In women, it would be breast cancer. But it is the most common um, cancer-related cause of death. So if you add up all the, the deaths from colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, they don't equal the number of deaths from lung cancer in a year, despite being many more of those cancers. All of those put together. Yeah. Is that right? And that's because, in part, prostate cancer you know, for many people is an incidental finding, right? That often doesn't need treatment or I think that's, minimal kinds of treatment? That's part of it. The other part is that lung cancer is often diagnosed at a later stage where hmm. it's not curative. Huh. And, and why is that? Why, why don't we find out about lung cancer earlier? Because we don't have, well, we didn't have um, active screening programs up until recently. And by the time you develop symptoms from lung cancer, it's often already metastasized. And certainly some people should know that they are at reasonable risk for lung cancer, right? I mean, if they're heavy smokers, I right. mean, pe people probably have by now seen the uh, the black box warning on the cigarette boxes, right? <laughs> I think so. So shouldn't those people be checking in every three months and scanning themselves or something? So we struggled with that for the last... 20, 30 years, and there were some trials, and none of the trials were really positive, looking at x-rays versus doing nothing. And finally, one trial did show a uh, survival benefit of screening with um, CAT scans in patients who are high risk for developing lung cancer, patients who have smoked heavily and smoked within the last 15 years. So how often, I mean, do we recommend that currently? And how Annually. Often they be? Yeah. Annually. Annual CT scans. Yeah. It's a low-resolution, low you know, low-dose radiation scan. And at Yale, there's an active program um, to try to understand the findings on these CAT scans because often you will see little things that are meaningless. Ditzels. ditzels. Little ditzels. Yes, that's a good word. Um, and so what happens when you find a ditzel? So we have different algorithms as to should we take this seriously? Should we just follow this? Should we biopsy it? And um, there's also a lot of anxiety, as you can imagine, from a patient. You're told that you have a shadow in your chest, and you know most likely it's going to be benign, but you have to deal with that anxiety. That shadow thing, it's like saying you have a euphemism in your chest. Exactly. Uh -huh. <laughs> Susan, shouldn't we be worried about irradiating all these people with all this CT scan stuff? Well, in general, as uh, Scott was noting, these are r very low-level uh, types of exposures. And when they did these studies, they were thinking about the fact that 
there is going to be some exposure, but it's always a risk benefit. Mm -hmm. And for certain high-risk subsets, my understanding is that the risk-benefit is much more on the side of benefit because they can potentially get early detection. Mm. So, Scott, who, who should be considered for this? So, generally, if you have what we call a 30-pack year history, so that is the number of cigarettes that you smoke a day times the amount of years that you were smoking. So if you smoked one pack of cigarettes a day for 10 years, you'd have a 10-pack year history. The recommendations currently are if you have a 30-pack year history and you um, are either currently smoking or quit within the last 15 years, you should have annual CAT scans. Hmm. And what about the people who uh, quit prior to 15 years? Are they at no increased risk of lung cancer no. compared to healthy people who didn't smoke? They are at increased risk, but the risk goes down after that 15 years, and then that's the risk, um, you know, the the benefit um, toxicity profile. So. so they just got to hope for the best. Yeah. Gotcha. And so, so let's walk us through it. So uh, uh, they, I'm in this screening program. Hopefully, I've given up smoking by now because uh, my internist put the fear of a higher power or cancer <laughs> to me or something. I got, I got the, I, I drank the Kool Aid, uh, and uh, I'm getting these scans and I'm okay. And then uh, my internist finds, let's say, something more than a ditzel, uh, something that that is, a, you know, a nodule or a worry. What's going to happen next? So let's say you have your first scan and you see a two-centimeter um, lung nodule that has um, speculated margin, uh, uh, edges, so it's not completely round. It's got little edges to it, uh, which is very worrisome for malignancy. At that point, you'll have a further workup, and depending on our different algorithms, that might just be a biopsy and then a surgery, or it might be additional imaging, like a PET scan. Um, it might be um, invasive um, staging, like a mediastinoscopy. But at that point, you would be... That's a long word, yeah. Scott. I don't even know what that is. It's, the, the, it's just a sampling of the area in between your lungs that holds lymph nodes. So gotcha. when you find a nodule like that, um, ideally, someone um, you'll be seeing a pulmonologist who will be interpreting these films for you and can take you through this. And if you find something, your pulmonologist will say this is the next step. And, and the next step often is a biopsy or another scan. So how do you do the biopsy? I mean, how do you do a biopsy of the chest? Do you have to, like, open up the chest? No, you, you generally use a either a CAT scan or, in some situations, an ultrasound to um, to visualize a lesion. And then you insert a needle into that lesion. So Through the chest? Through the chest. So, for example, if you have a patient lying on a table and you have a CAT scan going, you can see that a lesion exactly and you... You put a needle into it, and you can see the needle go into it. The other way to sometimes biopsy is with a bronchoscopy, where you, it's an outpatient procedure. You lie down um, on a bed, and, and uh, a pulmonologist inserts a tube into your lungs with a little camera. And through my can, throat? Through your throat, and, aye, they aye, can, aye. and they can find where the lesion is, and they can biopsy it. I'm not awake during that, right? You're you're under twilight. You know, depending on which pulmonologist, some put you down a little bit more, but I you're not under down. general. <laughs> I want to be down. Okay. No whiskey, though. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, and and is are these tests a pretty uh, reliable? So, if if they tell me that this is benign, 
can I believe that? So good question, because if, if the concern is so high, even a negative biopsy doesn't exclude a malignancy. So in some situations where it's, it's very clear that this is going to be a lung cancer, you don't necessarily even need a biopsy. You can just go and do the surgery. Because a negative biopsy doesn't mean necessarily negative. It may be that you just biopsied an area where there weren't any tumor cells or you just missed it in a sense. So um, so there are certain characteristics on an imaging study that would um, lead someone to a, a suspicion for lung cancer or not. And part of this is, you said, this kind of speculated, did you say? Yeah, kind so if you have little, little spines on the, on the, um, the surface of the, of the nodule, um, there's another, th- another type of finding which is quite common. It's what we call this ground glass, this little haze in the lung. And that's somewhat troubling because those are often precursor lesions to cancer. And we follow those. We don't take those out. And, and if they get big enough or if they become more solid appearing rather than that haziness, then that would um, lead us to do something to further evaluate. But a round nodule is okay. Well, even a round nodule can represent a cancer. If it's very well circumscribed, it can be other things, you know, other benign type of nodules. I see. So, so no nodule should be just ignored. Definitely not. So the... If you see something, you're either going to follow it with another scan or you're going to act on it, meaning a biopsy or some type of surgery or further imaging study. Gotcha. And uh, so so you've put some needle into me and you've given me bad news that it looks like it's cancer. And, and is the, the positive diagnosis of cancer? That's reliable, I assume. Yeah, if you you're see not it. You're going to tell me it's cancer and make a mistake. And the pathologists are pretty careful about that, I'm guessing? Yeah, I think they take it very seriously. So it's more likely you'll get a false negative than a false positive. Okay, so so we we know that I've uh, got the big C. And um, so what's next? So staging would be next. And depending on the characteristics, staging can include things like PET scans, which is a, a, another... Staging means what, seeing where else it might be or how far along it is? Is that Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So we want to see if it's anywhere outside of the lung. We also want to see if it's in the lung, in lymph nodes within the lung outside of that nodule, or in lymph nodes in between both lungs, an area that we call the mediastinum. Gotcha. And that's done with scans, you said. That we, well, you can do that with scans, and then there's um, staging where you actually put a camera behind the sternum uh-huh. and you are able to sample the lymph nodes there if there's enough suspicion or concern that those could be involved with cancer. And you do this all before you do surgery on my lung? Generally, we, we do this before. Some people will go into surgery and they'll sample lymph nodes in the medist- in, in that center part of the chest at the same time as surgery. We generally do things beforehand and then we think about what the best option for the patient is and then we go forward. Yeah, I know, uh, I think a lot of people know uh, people with breast cancer where even if they suspect some lymph node involvement under the arms, they do surgery and take that out. So, like, why wouldn't you just go in and, and rip out all those lymph nodes in the chest? So we, so in certain situations, we will do surgery in a patient who has lymph nodes that are in that mediastinum, the center part, um, if they have minimal amount of disease. If they have lots of lymph nodes there or bulky, big lymph nodes there, studies have suggested, randomized clinical trials have suggested that treating that for cure with the combination of radiation and chemotherapy is as effective as surgery and perhaps less morbid. And there, there really has been no trial that has clearly shown that, sur- that surgery adds a survival benefit to curative intent 
combined chemotherapy and radiation. That said, you can interpret the data in different ways, and we all believe that in some situations, even if you have lymph nodes in the center of the chest, surgery would be integrated. Hmm. Um, there's a doc at Hopkins who used to call that chemo BMO, the chemo radiation. I don't know if that's a general term or not. We sometimes use that. <laughs> I always thought that was kind of cute. Um, so, uh, okay, so how often is the cancer amenable to surgery? So with screening, we're going to see more early-stage cancers, which are going to be treated with surgery. But at this point, the majority of patients who are diagnosed have advanced disease, whether metastatic disease to different parts of the body or metastatic to those lymph nodes. And being a medical oncologist, the majority of patients that I see already have a diagnosis of metastatic disease. And so what do we do for those patients? So there are lots of things to do for those patients. Um, the the goal of therapy for someone who has a stage four or other words metastatic lung cancer which you can cure is to one improve any symptoms they're having at that point two to delay new symptoms from developing and three to prolong survival and the cornerstone really of treatment for our patients has been chemotherapy um, and that's been established after many clinical trials have shown that chemotherapy improves survival and maintains or improves quality of life for patients. So it's worth it to patients. Um, I think in the last maybe 10 years, there have been some exciting new developments in lung cancer. Um, one is finding very special types of lung cancers that are driven by certain abnormalities that we can do a lot about. So for example, if a tumor has something inside of it called an EGFR mutation or something called an ALK ALK, uh, rearrangement. These are alterations that drive the tumor. We have pills that target those abnormalities, and the vast majority of patients who get those pills will have dramatic, prolonged responses to those therapies. Hmm. Um, I think we're going to want to take that up, and I, I think we should also probably try to cover the different types of lung cancer, which we hadn't gotten to. Susan? We're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about information about therapies for lung cancer with Dr. Scott Gettinger. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year and nearly 200,000 nationwide. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Digital breast tomosynthesis or 3D mammography is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Susan Higgins along with my co-host, Dr. Stephen Gore. We're talking with our guest, Dr. Scott Gettinger, about targeted therapies for lung cancer. 
So maybe we'll start about uh, with talking about the different types of lung cancer. We use this general term, lung cancer, but we know that there are some very specific types, and that helps us to target the therapies. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Sure, sure. So there are two general types of lung cancer. There is non-small cell lung cancer, which accounts for the majority of lung cancers. 80 to 85% of lung cancers are non-small cell lung cancer. And then there are small cell lung cancers. And the difference between these cancers um, is in term, um, can best be described, I guess, by the rates of growth, the response to therapy, and, and maybe the prognosis, although prognosis is more driven by stage rather than types of lung cancer. And stage, again, is, is uh, information about where the disease is in the body. So non-small cell lung cancer, the most common type of lung cancer, can be further divided into three categories adenocarcinoma of the lung, which is the most common in the United States, squamous cell carcinoma, and um, large cell carcinoma. And small cell is small cell. So we chemotherapy is, again, the cornerstone of therapy for a metastatic disease for all these patients. Um, however, in patients who have locally advanced disease where they have lymph nodes, again, in that center part of the chest, we treat very, um, very similar ways with the combination of chemotherapy and radiation. Um, and this is, what, this is where it's very important to have a, a multidisciplinary team um, treating our patients. And usually we have consults with, with our patients with a radiation oncologist, a surgeon, a medical oncologist, a pulmonologist, and sometimes um, other folks, for example, smoking cessation counselors. And, and by doing this, we offer the patients the best possible um, therapy, I believe. So one of the things that patients don't see uh, is what goes on behind the scenes at a tumor board. And it's actually really important uh, for patient care because, all, as you know, all the physicians are there and able to coordinate their care. Maybe we could give patients a, a sense of what, what goes on there and how the decision-making is made. Sure, sure. Um, all patients that we see at, at Yale are discussed at a tumor board. It occurs once a week on Monday morning. And we review all the scans, the pathology, any other studies that we have. And we come up with a consensus um, recommendation as a group. And there's maybe 25 of us, surgeons, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, pathologists, pulmonologists, and others. This is before they've had surgery? This is before any treatment is, has been done for gotcha. them generally. And again, we come up with a plan as to what the next step is. And then the patient will come back and meet the, the, the folks that he needs to or she needs to meet. Yeah, and I think uh, it really uh, is something that happens behind the scenes. Uh, but I know that, you know, sort of as a ter tertiary care institution, we now feel that that's the standard. If you can get all your doctors in one room with the pathologist, with the radiologist, um, probably you're going to get better communication and hopefully better outcomes. Now, going back to these therapies, and we were talking about small cell and non-small cell, maybe you could tell us, about these newer therapies like the EGFR targeted therapies and what specific types of lung cancer you target with those therapies. So right now we, we have approved targeted therapies really just for non-small cell lung cancer. And targeted therapies, it's somewhat difficult to define. The idea is that you're using a targeted therapy that targets a target, right? So you need to have the target in the tumor, and you have to know that that therapy targets that tumor. Um, often, targeted therapies are approved not requiring the actual target in the tumor. You just assume that there's a certain percentage of those cancers that have that target, or you know that that target's important for promoting cancer. You mean the drug is approved for cancer 
understanding that you might be using it in patients in whom it's not going to be effective? Well, any therapy, but you don't necessarily have to have to, to you know, don't necessarily have to prove the target. For example, for lung cancer, there's a drug called bevacizumab, which is a in a sense a targeted therapy. It targets something called VEGF, which is something that's involved in new blood vessel formation. But we don't require a patient to have that target, whether it be you know in the tumor microenvironment or elsewhere. So that might not be truly used as a targeted therapy, although many consider it a targeted therapy. I think what Sue is asking is what specific targeted therapies do we have for our patients where we have to show that that patient has that very unique type of, of lung cancer. So there, there are several, and the three, the three that we, we really need to test just about all of our patients who have non-small cell lung cancer who don't have that squamous subtype, we should be testing for EGFR, which is epidermal growth factor receptor. We should be testing for ALK, and we should be testing for ROS. Because for all three of those special types of lung cancer, we have pills that work incredibly well. The vast majority of patients who get those pills will experience a, a marked reduction of their tumor bulk and clinically feel better. So those areas have really um, have, have really paved the way to look for other abnormalities that might drive tumors. And over the last five to 10 years, we have found other types of lung cancer, which are quite rare. Maybe 1% of the patients will have, say, a BRAF mutation in their lung cancer. But we have drugs that target BRAF. So those drugs are being developed now in, in different clinical trials. So I wanted to digress and talk about one group of or subset of patients. Um, we always associate the two, the smoking with lung cancer, but there's a specific group of never smokers. Yeah, I was wondering about that, too. We all know people like that, right? That, that have never smoked but get a lung cancer. And could you talk to, sure. talk to that, uh, speak to that for a moment about never smokers as a subset of all lung cancer patients? So approximately 15% of patients who have lung cancer do not have a history of smoking. And that is a sizable population relative to other cancers, so more than, say, stomach or esophageal cancer or acute leukemia. So in of itself, that's a real entity. Why patients who have never smoked get lung cancer? Why do they have cancer? No one knows. It can be many different um, exposures. It can be some spontaneous event. There may be some patients who have familial you know, uh, predisposition to having certain cancers. Um, but what we do know is that in patients who have um, never smoked um, and have lung cancer, there's a much higher chance of finding one of those abnormalities, the EGFR or the ALK. So in those patients particularly, you really need to go back and do a biopsy if enough tissue wasn't initially obtained to do those studies because knowing that information can profoundly affect that patient's prognosis. Well, how about smokers? Well, something very interesting um, has emerged recently. So there's a new type of therapy. It's called immunotherapy. And if I can go on, um, immunotherapy is very different than chemotherapy, and it's very different than targeted therapy. The, the purpose of immunotherapy is to get a patient's own immune system to attack his cancer, okay? And, and we have seen some dramatic, dramatic results from some of these newer therapies that allow one's immune system to do this. And one thing that we've seen when we look at all the patients that have been treated, and there have been thousands of patients that have been treated with these immunotherapies, we see that patients who have a history of smoking tend to have higher response rates to these immunotherapies. And the thought there, 
is that these patients have more abnormalities in their tumor. And if a tumor has more abnormalities, it's uh, recognized easier um, by the immune system. So the immune system can see it, and then you give these, these drugs that allow the immune system to do what it's supposed to do to attack uh, these cancers. Dr. Gettinger doesn't want to toot his horn, but in fact, you've led a lot of these studies, or at least contributed very substantially to these immunotherapies in lung cancer. I have, and, and I'll give you just one. There's many patient anecdotes, but I can just tell you one to, to give you an idea of the potential of these therapies. So when we started these trials about five, six years ago, um, one of the f- first patients I ever treated was a a woman who had advanced squamous cell lung cancer, had multiple lines of therapy, and her prognosis was quite poor on the order of a few months, okay? And we we didn't really have any other good therapies, and she was willing to go on to a clinical trial, and she got this this drug. It's called nivolumab. It's a drug that targets uh, the immune system to allow the immune system to fight cancer. She quickly responded clinically and radiographically, and this trial required that you stop therapy after two years. Whoever thought a patient with metastatic disease would be in that situation at two years where they, could, they would have to stop therapy, but she and many others got to two years, and then we had to stop therapy. Of course, you can imagine she was very worried, as, as I was, because this was new. We had no experience with this drug. So that was three years ago. She hasn't had any therapy since then. She recently had scans again. No evidence of active disease. And I don't know if I'll ever see disease. And it's not just her, it's many patients. And I think this is what this new class of drugs could potentially do, could lead to long-term survival in a, in a portion of patients on the order of years. So do you think some of these may, people may actually be cured? I mean, can we use the cure word? You know, we're Obviously reluctant we know. to use cure words, but for her, I expect scans look good without any evidence of disease. So, you know, I imagine that patients who see you you know, with a new diagnosis of advanced lung cancer, have got to be hugely upset and anxious and worried because we all have learned over the years that, in general, this has been a devastating diagnosis for most people. So uh, what's your consult like? I mean, um, so you, you have to be realistic and put things in context, and sometimes we use statistics, but there's clearly a lot of hope now, with all these new therapies, these targeted therapies, if your tumor is found to have these abnormalities, or with immunotherapies where your tumor doesn't need to have anything that we, that we need to find. So hopefully I can instill in our patients the hope that I feel for our patients because I've seen several patients who had a prognosis on the order of months who are out now years doing well. So I think there's reason to have hope, um, but to have some context there. And, and hopefully most of my consults, they end with hope, but a, a grounding as to what the possibilities are. Is it important for people to stop smoking once they already have lung cancer? It's always important for patients to stop smoking because it will improve their health. Will it affect the cancer that they have already? No, but it, they will feel better if they stop smoking, and that will potentially help to prevent another unrelated lung cancer or other cancer from developing. Gotcha. So uh, what the radio audience didn't see before was some uh, eye contact I got from Scott because he thinks that I'm a skeptic about immunotherapies. But the truth is, is just in the cancers that I work with, which is mostly blood cancers, we haven't yet seen the home runs, although we hope to soon. So in fact, I'm just jealous uh, that you guys are doing so well. So I think there's some, there's a beginning in some uh, hematologic malignancies of, of activity with these new Absolutely. Drugs. Certainly in lymphoma. In Hodgkin's lymphoma. disease, there's, there's a lot of activity. Um, very interesting. 
Um, so it's, it sounds like there's reasons for people to be hopeful. Um, it sounds like people really benefit from being at a center where they can get a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, are these newer therapies that you mentioned, these targeted therapies and these immunotherapies, are they readily available or do you need to come to a place like Smilo or some other tertiary um, center? So several of them are FDA approved, so available out in the community. And the first immunotherapy for lung cancer was approved a couple months ago. So patients will be getting this um, you know, out in the community. And we work with the community oncologists who have little experience with these drugs to help them get through the learning curve. Um, I think when a patient is initially diagnosed, it's always a good time for a consultation. And again, we work with the local oncologists. Um, and at the time a patient might develop resistance to one of these therapies, then I think evaluation at a tertiary center like Yale, where we have lots of clinical trials that are aimed at counteracting resistance to these drugs, I think then is when it makes sense to, to come to Yale. Or Wait, you mean the patient's been responding to the drugs and now they're not? Yep. The, the vast majority of patients who respond to therapy, whether that's chemotherapy, targeted therapy, or immunotherapy, will develop resistance whether that is six months, a year, five years, you know, more, um, they will. But what we do at Yale is we um, we take we're very um, we do lots of biopsies, and it, it, biopsies are are done with. Um, little morbidity now with new techniques. And what we do is we, we look at the tissue now. We get the tissue before they started therapy. We compare the tissue. What changed to explain the resistance to this therapy? And if we can find out what changed, we could potentially offer a therapy that counteracts that change and lead to response again. And that's one of our, um, our goals of, of our research here. Dr. Scott Gettinger is Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.